Hi, and welcome back to the All of Us podcast. It's Hero, and today is May 25th. It's Wednesday. And instead of starting this podcast episode with a more casual discussion about the week and personal stuff, I'm going to read something that I wrote this morning. On May 14th, a mass racist shooting occurred in Buffalo, New York, which left 10 people dead and three injured, almost all of them black. The white teenage gunman live-streamed the attack on a social media platform called Twitch. I met with Dr. Sean Utsi, a professor of psychology and the chair of African American Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University, just a couple days after this atrocity took place. During our conversation, we talked about Dr. Utsi's research relating to the psychology of the African American experience, the inadequacy of traditional psychotherapy when it comes to providing support for historically oppressed clients, and more specifically about how trauma manifests not only in the victims of racial violence, but in those who witness it again and again and again in the media. I would like to say that these topics are more prevalent today than ever, but the unfortunate truth is that they have been prevalent for decades, and as you'll hear Dr. Utsi say, the idea that the situation has improved or is improving is a fallacy. While preparing for this conversation, I read the news. I read countless articles about the slaying in Buffalo. I read horrific facts about the shooter's agenda. I saw pictures of families experiencing unimaginable devastation and loss. I, like so many others, was overwhelmed with a sense sense of urgency to do anything in my power to affect change, to voice my disappointment in a system that has continued to fail innocent people in this country. But even more than that, I was overwhelmed by a sense of complete and utter helplessness because in truth, this is a problem that as citizens, we have little to no power in improving upon. As much as we protest, as much as we repost on social media, as much as we donate and as much as we call and text to get the message to our senators, nothing seems to change. It is absolutely heartbreaking. And as I sit down to record this morning, it is not even 24 hours since another mass shooting took place. Yesterday morning in Uvalde, Texas, 20 elementary school students and two teachers were killed by another white teenager who legally and without issue went into a gun supply and purchased an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, among other weapons, which he posted pictures of on Instagram shortly before the shooting. This is a vicious attack on innocent children and their teachers, and it is a vicious attack on the mental health of their families, on parents who are now terrified to send their children to school, on students who wonder if and when they will be next, and on the rest of us who feel completely betrayed by the decision makers in this country who senselessly and inhumanely continue to neglect this dire issue and in turn continue to perpetuate it. The conversation you are about to hear between myself and Dr. Utsi is about racial violence in this country and what must change if we as a country are to properly support those who have and continue to experience it and those who have and continue to witness it as well. But as you listen, know that it applies here too. It applies to violence inflicted upon all innocent people and children. It applies to the urgent need for systemic change, not only to face the issue of violence itself, but to address how we may adequately and effectively provide provide support for each other as we witness it collectively. 
I urge everyone to stay informed, to take action where it will be effective, and to stay mindful of your mental health during this time. Dr. Utsi brings up the fact that there is a threshold between effective media consumption around this type of violence and when it becomes traumatizing. Pay attention to the nature of the news you are consuming, how much of it you are consuming, and how you are engaging with others around these topics, especially if you are choosing to do so online. And lastly, I hope you are showing yourselves love today, as well as to the people around you. Okay, thank you so much for being here and for listening. I know this has been heavy, but it's an extremely important topic that we all must be speaking about. And here is my conversation with Dr. Sean Utsi. Thank you so much for making the time and for joining me today. So I came across your work at first in my multicultural counseling course, because right now I'm in a graduate program at Pepperdine. Um, And I came across your 2001 article um, on on Fanani and like liberation psychology um, in that course. And I was very surprised in the process of taking that course that we received sort of no specific education on how to sort of adequately provide mental health sort of support or, or psychological support to, it was very general and there was no sort of focused attention on how to provide that sort of support in a modern way to any specific population that wasn't white. It was just sort of white and then multicultural or diverse. And that to me was very alarming. And so that's why I kind of went on this um, sort of, I don't know, journey of of looking deeper into this issue and came across your work. And then in a talk that you gave, I think in 2018, that was a part of a webinar series, you mentioned um, sort of how Shelley Harrell's work has influenced sort of your measures and your work. And she's actually a tenured professor at Pepperdine. And she taught um, my group group therapy course. So that was another interesting coincidence. So I guess um, to start, I'd love to talk about sort of your initial foray into this line of work and this line of research. Again, I, I went to school in New York, um, graduate school in, in the uh, 90s. And, and much like the times we live in now, there were a lot of uh, racial animus uh, being expressed by the police, uh, by the general population. There were lots of very uh, antagonistic events that happened in the black community. Uh, there were police killings. Uh, there were literally lynchings in, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, Yusef Hawkins comes to mind. Michael Griffith comes to mind. Amadou Diallo comes to mind. Uh, Eleanor Bumpers was an elderly black woman who was shot by the police. Um, we had Bernard Getz, the subway shooter, who shot four young black men on the subway. Um, and this was kind of a weekly occurrence while I was in grad school. And so, and trying to, uh, and recognizing my own struggles to deal with this chronic exposure to these, you know, racial hostilities, I, I uh, began to think about how I could, how I could kind of make this a research interest. Um, and then about that time, a article came out in um, some journal that said the life expectancy of black men in Harlem was lower than that of men in Bangladesh. And so it, it made me think that perhaps this chronic exposure to racism uh, had some effect on life expectancy. 
Because I know I felt that it was, uh, you know, catching me in a way that my health was being affected. And so uh, keeping that in the back of my mind, I had a class assignment in which we had to create a research project. And so I thought I would, I would use this opportunity to see if I can measure this in my uh, population. Um, but I discovered that there were no measures um, of, of life events that captured what I thought my um, participants were experiencing. So I, I created my own, and, and that kind of set me off on this path. And I was lucky to find Shelly Arell's work because it's not a measure it wasn't published. Um, I'm not even quite sure why I found it, but I was happy to find it because there was nothing, nothing published in that area. Yeah, you had said that, that that sort of discussion started in 1995 or six, and that you guys had been discussing it, but that your work sort of, or your measures were published first, but that um, you sort of emphasized the fact that that discussion with her had already been taking place, even though her work wasn't published. So, um, so yeah, you you had said too, I read a, an interview that you gave with, it was a part of a, um, a series that graduate students did, I think, with public books. Um, and you had said that you were doing, so you were in NYU grad school and you were doing work at a, a rehab in Harlem and that you were seeing that a lot of your sort of colleagues were experiencing trauma, but that, and that when you started to look into the links between trauma and then like substance abuse disorder and those types of things that the, the sort of like um, specific examples of trauma that were being sort of provided by the research, it was like, planning vacation, getting married, and that those issues were very separate from those being experienced by, by your colleagues. Very true. Very true. And in fact, uh, that was, uh, I actually got a chance to meet the uh, person, um, Bruce Darwin, who developed the life event scale. He's a, you know, he's a pioneer in, in life event research. Um, and so I would, I would be able to meet with him and ask him about that. So that was a uh, highlight of my career. Um, but yeah, that, that really, what you described is what I was describing uh, in my work in some people's treatment. Um, and so that kind of parlayed my, uh, my interest later when I would you know, pursue my PhD. And then I would begin to uh, set about developing a measure of race-related stress. And uh, again, at the time, it captured all of that was going on in New York. Um, and there was a lot. So the measure, you know, I, I would discover later would have some limitations based on geography and, and it was kind of to New York. Um, for example, I had an item about hailing a cab. And so if you're not in New York, you wouldn't be hailing a cab, right? And there are a few other examples too, but it still was very, uh, you know, very important, um, you know, step at the time. Yeah, so I think that too, you had said that, um, the, obviously the exposure to racial violence was, I think now obviously because of media, and I want to talk to you a lot about sort of exposure via the media today, because I think not only with this issue, but with so many issues, the general um, collective anxiety, at least from my perspective, in so many ways is being heightened because of our exposure to the experience, like with um, Shelley Harrell's work, like vicarious, like living sort of experiencing vicarious trauma. I think that's existing in so many different um, sort of facets of life today. But 
I think we see this racial violence so much more and more frequently today because the media is better at sort of propagating that exposure on sort of like an endless, it's like an endless stream because of how much the media is visual, is visible to all of us today. But as you said in that one interview, this isn't something that's sort of like escalating right now. This is maybe even more so was happening when you were in graduate school. I do think, um, uh, you know, I was talking to somebody earlier today and, and, you know, we were talking about how there's a tendency, you know, by, by pundits to say that, you know, things aren't where they should be in terms of racial, racial relations, but they're better than they used to be. Mm. And I'm no, I'm no longer sure that's true. Um, and, and of course, the media could be partially responsible for it, just being able to see more of it. But, but I, I think um, even, <laughs> um, you know, even when there were newspaper accounts uh, of, you know, these kinds of uh, racial violence that we're experiencing now, uh, what happened in Buffalo, for example, would still be way up on the, the you know, parameters of, of an extreme event. In history, in the history of this country, uh, and so, and, and the, you know, and then we have South Carolina, which would also, again, even during Jim Crow era, right? These events would would register way up there in terms of magnitude. So uh, even when we are able to say that the media is responsible for us seeing more of this, we still have to think about the magnitude of some of these events would still rank high amongst those events from the Jim Crow era. Mm. So I'm, I'm not sure that uh, we can, you know, find solace in the idea that things aren't where they should be, but they're better than they used to be. Right. I don't know if that's true any longer. There is also, um, sort of in going back to to your referencing some of the, the measures and studies that have influenced your work, I think that it was... Um, maybe you'll be able to help me with identifying who exactly um, sort of theory this was, but the fact that it isn't the event, it's the extent to which the event stays with us that creates the trauma. Is it Brochot, Piper, and Thayer? Yes, 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 Brochot, Piper, and Thayer. That's, yes. That's it, that's it, that's it. Uh, um, so this is another thing that I wanted to talk to you about in terms of potentially the sort of the... Um, media impacting the extent to which these events stay with us because you had mentioned the example of somebody of a friend you guys you walking with a friend and something sort of some form of racial violence being presented to you or like put inflicted upon you you sort of forgetting around the corner and the friend the next day and the next day reminding you do you believe that in some way the media acts as that friend constantly reminding you as in terms of a general collective Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's a possibility, and again, that would be a, a ideal area of research. Um, prolonged activation was the word I was looking for. Yes. Again, these words sometimes slip my mind more frequently than they used to. <laughs> but prolonged activation is the concept that that kind of you know really began to change my thinking about racial distress, and I do I do think that the media uh, serves as this perceptive cognition mechanism that won't let you forget. Yeah. Where many times we had those mechanisms as part of our individual differences. And so, but the media can, can kind of say, you know, equalize it and making that available to all of us. 
Hmm. So even when we do forget, we are reminded. But typically, uh, you know, something comes along soon enough that re- reignites our thoughts. But the media certainly plays a role. Now, I don't know if, if that's good or bad. Um, but I think uh, the media, just like the, you know, the far right politicians have figured out something uh, that, that touches people very deeply. And, and, and the media uses it to sell, to sell media, um, to sell their products, and politicians use it to get votes. But I think we've all discovered this real uh, deep uh, psychic um, mechanism that gets us all going, and that's race. Mm. I think that's what's happening. The media does it because uh, they, they discovered it like politicians have. Yeah, I agree. Something but, that I- but I'm thankful they do because, you know, if they didn't, if they didn't, um, many of us would not be able to uh, construct ways to be safe, right? If right. we were oblivious, if we were oblivious to what's going on, um, we'd be more vulnerable. Yeah, I think that that conversation. I think that that conversation of necessary awareness and visibility versus risk of like intense trauma. Um, is is an interesting one because I do agree that to some extent it is helpful and necessary for this for all of this to be very visible but then sort of on the other end of it um, this issue of experiencing racism and then vicarious like through the wit not only directly but also through witnessing racism and that being traumatic in itself to a really sort of extreme extent is something that um, sort of is interesting to weigh to weigh, yeah, those two sort of. I'm sure there's a threshold whereby we don't become saturated as opposed to that just enough to let you know what's going on. Right. Versus, you know, there, there should be, there, there, I mean, you know, I, I agree that there should be some public health policy that guides the, the media outlets that lets them know that, you know, perhaps showing the same story twice as opposed to eight times Right. Has, you know, has the same purpose of informing people, uh, you know, and at some point you kind of reach, you know, a ceiling. And so now you're just kind of traumatizing people. So you're, I, I think there should be some, uh, you know, some public health interventions that say that's enough. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because right now, I think as with a lot of um, sort of exposure media like that, it feels kind of like the wild west like nobody's really mediating any of this in a way that prioritizes the mental health of sort of not only like the general public but also of african american populations and specific yeah it just feels a little bit um like unmoderated but in a way but then again like how do you moderate something in a way that is um, right. Unprejudiced. It's a really complicated issue, but I do agree that there needs to be some sort of um, greater consideration of how this sort of propagation of media and exposure is impacting all of our mental health. So right. just a little bit more on on your background before, because I'd love to talk mostly about sort of the Fanon paper and the, the idea of liberation within the context of psychotherapy, because I think it's very complicated, but it's something that needs to be discussed more. Um, especially on mental wellness platforms. 
Um, but so with your pursuing a PhD and then obviously writing your dissertation, it's, I think, as you said, again, in another interview, they, it's very sort of highly recommended that you do not write on something that is personal and you've obviously chosen, or you did choose a very personal topic, um, which led to, I think you being, it, it sort of being revealed to you, um, sort of, you had mentioned again, like passive aggressive, like racism, um, like on the, on the part of like PhDs that were reviewing your dissertation, like somebody sort of suggested that you remove like a whole section on white supremacy. And I'm just curious, I guess, in your pursuing, um, your research, what you've been sort of most surprised to, to learn about sort of systemic racism and, and white supremacy and its sort of existence within, um, sort of like even like psychological institutions and and in the mental health field that claims to be sort of like supportive of all people. Yeah, no, again, I appreciate you uh, having, having, you know, familiarize yourself with my work because that story uh, certainly uh, was impactful. Um, it was just one of many stories I had in grad school uh that almost you know torpedoed my my career before it began um and, and it, it continued all the way through uh <laughs> to the date that my degree was conferred um because they have these little processes even after you defend your dissertation there's a format review um that was very problematic for me where, where I, I learned that the power of white supremacy hides in, in big places and small places. And, and, and so I don't have any evidence as to the motivations, but I do have evidence as to the outcomes of the, 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 the secretary to the dean who was responsible for simply triaging dissertations to the reviewers and, and getting back to you with the results of the review. Um, and so my dissertation, after I defended it, right? You know, um, and I only have, I'm inclined to attribute the content or the, the, you know, the content of the dissertation as the creating this, this animus that she would do this to me. But uh, even though I had passed, and the reviewer had submitted my results to this woman two weeks ago because I, I was frustrated because of the long wait. It had been a month already. So I called him directly this time because I was always going to check with her. Any word yet? Any word yet? In my, in my most nicest black person's voice at, at, at Fordham University, mm -hmm. you know, being the only black face in the building most of the time. I understood how to get things done, or I thought I did. And she said, no, nothing yet, no, nothing yet. And so I decided, let me call the reviewer directly. I don't know where I got a number from, but Fordham would hire a bunch of retired priests and they would do things like this on a volunteer basis. So I called them and said, oh, I did that two weeks ago. Oh, okay, thank you. So I went back and asked her again, anything yet? Oh, no, nothing yet. I'm thinking, wow. So I went and complained to the dean and told him I talked to the reviewer. He told me ten minutes two weeks ago. So then the next day I get my um, call that it's done. 
<laughs> I go up there to get my, my, my form, and I can see she wiped the date out. She wiped it out when it said date completed. She wiped it out. And so I'm thinking, my God, the point is, is that, that even the secretary had the power to control uh, or misdirect my progress in my PhD program. And, and there was nobody, the dean, even when I went to the dean with the evidence, look, you can see, I talked to the reviewer and you can call them, these your people. He told me when it was done. Mm -hmm. I asked her the same day, he told me it wasn't done. When I came to get my document, you can see where it's whited out. And, and, and they, they dismissed me, like what? So what? So, so I say all this to say <laughs> that, that what I've learned, right? is that, that this uh, white supremacist animus hides in all kinds of places, big and small. And, 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 and sometimes um, you, your choices or your options for uh, biting it are limited. And, 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 and certainly, uh, I began to think about that in the context of psychotherapy. Mm. And, and what we're trained to do right? And, and how doing the right thing may seem overwhelming and even be discouraged. Right. And so, yeah, that, that's, uh, I'm sorry for digressing, but that's. Oh, absolutely. No, I know there are a number of those stories, like with your, the folk, I read um, too about your focus work group at Seton Hall about the, the story with the vignette and the woman and. And all of that. And it's just, um, yeah, I think that what got me thinking about this was somewhere along your work, you would sort of thought too that, um, and I know I keep bringing up, like, it's funny to sort of talk to you about what you've thought along the process of your work, but I did read a lot about your process. And um, you sort of had this, this moment, you had said that you realized that there was a lot of um, sort of writing on Black pathology and that side of things, but not on the other side of why the behavior, the often unprovoked behavior occurs in the way that it does from white people. And that the, the writing was, was happening on the other side, but sort of, again, not to sort of like highlight the problematic nature of often unprovoked behavior on the part of white people. And so that's why I think that these kinds of stories are very interesting because, and necessary to sort of shed light upon, because I think that this sort of, um, like very complicated, often passive aggressive forms of racism, especially from white people that consider themselves to be very progressive and liberal, um, is something that's is too occurring um, a lot today. Like you see it all the time on, again, like social media and the media in general. I think um, it's all of this is very visible. Um, yeah. Yeah. But then, so to kind of going back to your sort of. Um, taking from that that we're off that you said that there's a place and a time to kind of like confront issues like that and to kind of stand up for yourself and and point out the fact that it is problematic and extremely racist um and that sort of now kind of segueing into the conversation of how liberation can play a role in psychotherapy a big kind of the your the paper on um like Fanonian liberation within psychotherapy very much hinges on this idea that 
psychotherapy right now sort of it surrounds normalizing the racist experience and it's like kind of continuing this like status quo of racism and just accepting this behavior as very like naturalized instead and it being sort of a personal experience that one needs to kind of like put away and learn techniques to oppress and to sort of like cope with um and something that you bring up is the fact that like again I think it was a story too about um like an incident with like your son at school and going and like recognizing that like racism cannot be an individualized experience. It needs to be sort of addressed as a collective experience. Um, And it needs to be something that's, that's confronted because otherwise like there is no improvement. How does that sort of translate within psychotherapy? Cause I think that I, again, like therapy is a very individual experience, but this idea that in order for improvement to happen in terms of like confronting racism that it can't be looked at as an individual experience how will you talk about that a little bit because I think um it is kind of like a a complicated concept for a lot of people to understand because therapy is sort of presented as such this like very personal individual experience yeah no and again I I really admire your preparation for this discussion because you've done your homework and and, and I acted those things and I believe them and I, I learned them kind of you know by by um you know, by by a ex- experiential means, in, in that I was I was uh, certainly um, always aware of the need to uh, dismantle systems that kind of perpetuate racism, white supremacy, um, and and I was I was also aware that I was being trained in a program, uh, even though they they had uh, an interest in multicultural, you know. Um, counseling uh, strategies and awareness, and, and my, my mentor was certainly a, a, a pioneer in this area. Um, but even in those days, I could see the limitations. And he, he and I would often have, you know, um, we wouldn't butt heads, but we would have challenging conversations. But he was typically open to them. Um, with some limitations. And, and so I could see then, and looking back, that even then I had some objections to how multicultural counseling and multicultural issues in psychology were being kind of, uh, 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 you know, created to kind of put everything in this one big pot to kind of, you know, contain it, right? And so it didn't make sense to me that, that the issues for me, Black folks, would be drowned out um, in this pot of multicultural issues. And the same is true for everybody else who's in the pot. Their issues are being drowned out, right? And so I don't think it works for anybody. Um, but when I was on internship, right, and I had a client, uh, uh, actually a white identified black client, um, or a pre-encounter, if we use racial identity theory, a pre-encounter black client, uh, who for her, for the most part, race was not really an issue for her. You know, uh, and, and she didn't really have any problems like that at school. She, most of her friends were white. Um, but what, you know, but she was a client of mine. And she came because uh, she had, uh, this particular day, um, encountered a overt act of racism whereby they had written nigger on the chalkboard 
in the class before she arrived. And she felt that they knew she was coming and wrote it in anticipation of her arrival. And so in that moment, in working with her on that issue, it occurred to me that, that I was uh, indignant about what had happened to her, just as much as she was. And so I, I kind of had this collective reaction with her that this was an affront not only to you and me, but to all of us. And we have to address this. I'm not going to help you feel better about this. I'm not going to help you come up with strategies, right? We're going to go to the dean and demand some action. We're going to inform the professor what happened and ask him to, you know, contribute to our investigation, but we're not going to uh, work through this. We're going to move on this and, and see how we can seize the opportunity to, to make sure this doesn't happen again. And, and that's when I kind of seen how, how, how this really should look, mm -hmm. right? And how uh, there was a, and I don't know what moved me on that day to reject my training, which told me I should help her, uh, you know, deal with the feelings, <laughs> perhaps uh, convince her that she's upset because you know, it's all in her mind, and that if we do some common reframing strategies, she'll feel better about it. In fact, she'll see it not as her problem, but their problem. And, and so I was able to reject all that, right? And, and say, no, 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 we gotta fix. We gotta address this. This is a, this is a bigger problem, it's systemic, and we have to address address the system that permits this to happen. And so that that was kind of when I, I learned this by fire that therapy is inadequate, uh, not only for black people, but for people who find themselves uh, the subject of these systemic you know, issues that, that restrict their, their you know, quality of life. And so it, it, it would apply to anybody who found themselves on the end of an oppressive situation, that trying to help them manage it or to acquiesce to it is not effective. And in fact, it, all it does is it kind of you know perpetuates the system because now the system is meeting no resistance. So it just keeps on rolling. Yeah. But even even some resistance, right, slows it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. It makes it thick. It kind of and if we have more resistance, the more it slows it down. The less resistance is so on full cycle. Yeah, yeah. That's for those are. for those who haven't read your paper, which is just incredible. I mean, I had, I read it yesterday and then again this morning, just because again, it's, um, it's a lot to digest, especially for somebody like me who this type of research and work is very, I had never heard of um, Franz Fanon before or, yeah, this is all very new to me. And um, it was absolutely so enlightening and, and incredible. And I just want to read sort of a few um, lines from the from the paper that I think have a lot to do with exactly like right now what we're talking about just for listeners who haven't read it. So um, traditional psych psychological theories as well as contemporary psychotherapy function as an instrument of social control rather than a mechanism for social change. It's one that's I think very much in line with what we were just talking about. And then focus of modern psychotherapies is one of self-compromising adjustment to the status quo of oppression. And then sort of on the other side of that, efforts toward the liberation of African-Americans must be directed at changing causes, not just a reduction in associated symptoms. So exactly what you were talking about with, you, you could have sort of 
um, introduced to her like different cognitive reframing techniques, meditation, breath work. This is how you sort of make yourself feel better. And I think me as a somebody who's learning to be a therapist myself, we learn how to soothe people and how to sort of oppress trauma and triggering thoughts and sort of intrusive thoughts and and all of these things that sort of um, inhibit our ability to function in a quote unquote healthy way day to day. But a lot of the time that tr- that there's only a certain amount of oppression and sort of self-soothing that that can go on. And then at a certain point, it's not sustainable. And I think that's especially true for like, I could never understand the experience of what your client experienced. And then in turn, how that impacted you. Cause again, like what I think what triggered you in that moment is that it, what it's not. And to the point of you saying that this is not an individual racism is not an individual issue. This is a collective issue that needs to be addressed as a collective and acted upon as a collective. So this is something that sort of was um, sort of offensive and traumatizing, not only to her, but to you. And so I think there's only a certain amount of of sort of a traditional therapy that would be effective and only to a certain extent. I totally agree with the fact that it's just completely inadequate. And I'm curious um, as a professor yourself in psychology, how that is being addressed within institutions. Because even for me in my institution, and I think that I go to a fantastic graduate program it isn't really being addressed in a way that is um, sort of progressive in, in this way um, in terms of affecting new and lasting change. Um, so I'm curious how that's that's happening um, within the institution that you are at um, or where you see it happening um, elsewhere. Good question. Um, but let me just back up one second and, and state a few facts. Yeah. Um, and although my work typically uh, is concerned with the, the experience of, of, of people of African descent, um, because that's my passion, that's what I do. Uh, let's be clear that, that, that nobody is exempt from, from, from these systems that I'm describing, right? And, and, and white folks, uh, Latino folks, everybody would benefit from a therapeutic intervention that didn't try to make them sue them and acquiesce to what was going on. Mm. And so it's not really, this should be therapy, period, right? This should be a therapeutic approach um, that, that is more effective than helping people adjust to things as they are. Um, and so I want to be clear about that. But particularly for oppressed groups, mm. it's more effective. Now, I don't think universities, I don't think I don't think training programs in psychology can disentangle themselves from the capitalist, you know, uh, entrenchment that they that they that they kind of perpetuate and serve. I'm clear about that, right? I, I went to graduate school and I was being trained to be a business person. Um, I was being trained in ways that would make me an effective business person, right? A therapist. I wasn't. I really didn't want to be a professor at first. That happened by accident. That's another story. But in being a therapist, I was trying to learn how to do the business, how to engage in best practices for my business, mm-hmm. right? And what I was trained to do makes business sense, right? I don't want to remove those systems that distress you. If I do that, I'm putting myself out of work, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so. 
to be able to get you to rely on me to help you sue and, and, and kind of strategize ways around this is going to keep you coming back. Um, and so I think from a business perspective, it's important to understand that. Mm. Now, training-wise, um, universities aren't sincere or, or training programs aren't really sincere about the mantling systems. If they were, they would, they would have to recognize some ugly truths that they're going to have to first be real with their trainees. And let me give you an example, right? I always challenge my doctoral students to contemplate uh, how they interact with their clients. So they're all in training, so they have clients. And so I say, do you discuss the diagnoses with your clients? Um, and so they pause, right? And I remind them that, that they, if they've been in therapy, <laughs> much like myself, probably negotiate your diagnosis with your therapist, right? To ensure, to ensure that you're going to be safe within the justice order, something that, that, that miles, but gets the insurance coverage, mm -hmm. right? And, 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 and so, the reason why I do that, because I understand the implications of that diagnosis on my future and the potential for it to cause harm in the future, right? And so I'm able to, to negotiate that because I have a PhD in psychology. I have some exposure and I'm sophisticated enough. And so if a program was trying to empower people, right, they would, they would perhaps, and they couldn't do away with diagnoses, all right? they would then train their students to negotiate diagnoses with patients. They wouldn't, they wouldn't allow them to keep that secret, to kind of conceal that from the client, unless the client asks directly. And so that's how I, I challenge my students to, to, to think about whether or not they are real about this power sharing, this mantling, this power differential, uh, empowering their clients. Uh, if they really are feminists or, you know, liberation psychologists. Because if you are, you wouldn't put your patients at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. um, you would make sure they had all the information they needed to make informed decisions. And so if I knew how my diagnosis could possibly impact my future in case of divorce, child custody battles, um, any other legal problems I might have, should it come up again, right? it could be detrimental to those outcomes. Right. If I don't know that, then I can't really consent uh, to treatment. Right. But yeah. if you told your patients, if you told your patients the truth, something might not come back. They might not agree to that. Exactly. I think that um, it's interesting with you talking about um, education in terms of becoming a therapist, being a you learn a business model. Like one of the first courses that I took was about how to deal with insurance companies, which was extremely surprising to me. So, and I definitely, the whole, I never intended in my undergraduate, I studied art history in undergraduate college. I thought that I was going to go into curatorial arts and art advisory. This is all very new to me after I encountered my own sort of struggles with, with mental health. Um, and I've always known that if I was going to do this line of work, I wanted to be a very out of the box therapist because I have encountered, I've experienced, I've been very fortunate to experience lots of different therapists and often very good, 
good ones. Um, but a lot of it has not worked for me. And what has worked for me has been very out of the box therapy that I've been lucky enough to have access to. But in going to school for this myself, I've realized that in terms of like therapists that work within network and are off are accessible to the general public, there is no sort of progressive out of the box therapy because it's set up to fail in the system. And in terms of this sort of like liberation therapy that that is so important that you're suggesting is like very important that it needs to happen. It feels kind of like, I mean, obviously not to be so pessimistic, but like in learning about even like mildly out of the box therapy and how set up for failure it is in terms of the current structure of therapy, how would something like this work? Like it just seems so far off, even though it is so necessary. Like what steps do we do are are even to be taken at first to step to go to kind of step in that direction and it be sort of a sustainable restructuring of the way that therapy exists today as it is accessible like by the general public and not just people who can afford like fancy progressive therapy. Yeah, no, I agree. And therapy happens in many forms. Um, right now, uh, my my new. Uh, career trajectory is filmmaking. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. Yeah, and and, and for me, this is my liberation, my liberation psychology, Mm -hmm. because I'm able to construct narratives, right, that uncover truths and and that that appeal to people's uh, sensibilities in ways that move them. And so I discovered that if, if, if it's about action at some point, right? And, and it's about it's about being moved to action. Therapy, therapy is about being moved to action. It should be. Now, typically, the action is is to not engage in some behavior that's dysfunctional. But for people trying to dismantle these oppressive systems, the action is is to attack those systems in ways that dismantle them. And so, I've, I've learned through trial and error in, in one of my film projects, a couple of actually at least two of them, they resulted in action. The, the outcome of the people, of boards of, of people watching these films is that they were outraged and moved to action. And this created a pressure on the systems that were responsible for that outrage and they had to acquiesce, mm. right? And, and so I've seen it work. I've seen it work. Now, uh, this is not much different than me doing talk therapy. I'm just talking through a different medium, a more effective medium in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can see it. And, and, and when you can see it and hear it, you can feel it, right? And so, and so for, for, for black people, we tend, to, we tend to, the seat of intelligence is, is not really our mind, but our heart. And, and, and sometimes it gets us in trouble, right? We become vulnerable to abuse and oppression because we think with our hearts. And so um, even when things may not be in our interest, we might still do it because it's the right thing to do. And it's how I feel about it that makes, that makes me, that moves me. So I'm trying to use a culturally appropriate way to speak to black folks, to let them know, here's what's happening. Here's what we got to do. And it seems to be effective. And so 
I think this idea of liberation therapy has to come out of the box of talk therapy as well as the only expressive means uh, of doing this work, right? And, and that's the other thing, and, and for all people, all of talking about black people, it applies to everybody. Mm. Um, the idea that talk therapy uh, is the only appropriate means of, of you know, eradicating disorder, disease, is also a fallacy. Um, you being in the arts, and, and me coming along, you know, my career trajectory, seeing that art therapy, music therapy, uh, um, meditation, mindfulness, all these things that are supposedly new are not new, right? They don't make as much money as talk therapy, but they are essential in many environments to kind of, you know, support the other therapies going on. Yeah. Um, and talk to any, uh, 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 you know, young person, uh, particularly young African-American person. And, and, and I know growing up, um, going out on Fridays and Saturdays to the club was therapeutic because the music, the dance, the movement, uh, the, the, the fellowshipping, all this kind of gave me energy to go back on Monday and do it again. And, and so the therapy of music, right? And now we know more about the vibrations and the, you know, what it actually does, like chemically, right? But, but we know that, that music and that, that art and that all these other expressive modes uh, are also therapeutic. But I don't think they're going to make as much money as talk therapy. So we don't really give them much precedent. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that as somebody that's always been very artistically inclined, and again, that's the field that I very much believed I was going into, not only in terms of um, sort of in an in, in the academic space and in terms of art history, but also as an artist myself, I've been interested in photography since I was 10 years old and picked up a camera and I still pursue it semi-professionally today. It's my one of my greatest passions, if not my greatest. Um, and for me, it has been extremely therapeutic for my entire life. I, not only creating art, but also consuming it and reading about it, it is absolutely therapeutic for me. And I think that um, in sort of my process of going into going down this sort of journey of studying psychology and pursuing a career in mental health, I've had people say to me, why don't you go into art therapy? It would make so much sense. And my knee jerk reaction is, well, that's not really a, a real, like, I don't see it as a real thing. And immediately the image comes to mind of like, I don't know, like having people in like, a cause I've been to, um, I struggled with an eating disorder and I was in an outpatient rehab and we engaged in quote unquote art therapy. And it was making these like little like finger paintings and drawings. And I was like, this is not. So that's my experience of art therapy. And I think when people think of art therapy, they think of that kind of very sort of like elementary style of creating these little drawings. And it's not, um, there's no like substance to it. I think people think of it as very, again, as I said, like elementary and not fully formed and not nuanced um, and not deep in any way. And I think that that needs to change because Again, I think what you're doing with, with your filmmaking is absolutely like high art therapy. I think that needs to exist, high art therapy, because I think so much art that's being created today is therapy, not only for the artist, but for the people that, is, that it's intended for as viewers. Um, so yeah, I just, I want to talk to you a bit about, a bit more about your documentary filmmaking. Have you always, and you're, have you, are you only doing documentaries or have you gone into yeah. sort of, yeah. 
So have you always been sort of creatively inclined or when did this idea first, first come about? No, um, never been creatively inclined. Never. Um, but I was, uh, when I was chair of African American studies, uh, first time, um, maybe 2007, 2008, uh, we had a, uh, you know, a guest speaker, um, Hadi Jarima. He's a, a filmmaker from DC. He's an Ethiopian filmmaker who had directed a cult classic called Sankofa. And Sankofa is a, is a really profound movie about the, uh, um, about, about, about the evolution of black identity. Right, and, and it's really like roots on steroids in terms of how it appeals to a very deep part of the black psyche. And so uh, I had him down to, to talk about another movie he was working on about uh, maroon, maroon communities of enslaved African-Americans who ran away and they, they kind of lived in the dismal swamp in North Carolina, Virginia. And so this is a true story and, and he was working on it but never finished it. And so when he came down, in between the hotel and the lecture, he and I were talking about, you know, struggles of young black male. Um, I forget what was going on in the news, but that kind of spurred us to talk about, you know, what can we do? And he said that we need to get cameras in their hands and let, let the young people tell their stories. Mm. And I, for some reason, it stuck with me. I wrote a grant and, and, and got the money, and I started a film camp for young black boys in Richmond, in the East End, uh, which is our under-resourced community. And, and, and at, at, at that time, um, I had no background in this. So I went to a film camp myself at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. It was like a week-long film camp. And we had to, uh, at, you know, as the, the, you know the, the, the capstone of the program was to create our own five-minute short. And, and I fell in love with it. I was like, wow. This is powerful, mm-hmm. right? This is powerful from, from, from taking the raw footage and constructing a story, right? And being able to include humor where there was no humor intended by, by you know, rearranging you know, segments of the footage, uh, the music, how the music adds a whole other element of emotion to a, to a, to a message. I, I was hooked, I was hooked. Yeah. Uh, so, so I did the film camp. And I figured I would do my own project simultaneously to the film camp. And, and that's how I began. Um, and, and I discovered that, that my, my, my therapist, uh, the part of that therapist that I wanted to be uh, was really a reflection of me loving to hear stories, to hear people tell their stories. And so even now, I'm, I'm, I always find myself interviewing people for one reason or another, whether it's for a project or not. Um, and I love to hear their stories. And, and I can't even tell you how much I've learned from just doing this uh, and hearing firsthand accounts um, from some pretty incredible people. So uh, it's therapeutic to hear these stories and then again, tell them again. Yeah, um, I'm working on the project now. My, my, my most recent project is about uh, in the, the first insane asylum for African Americans in the U.S. It opened after the Civil War in 1868. 
Um, and so we know that all these people were formerly enslaved. They were formerly enslaved. And now here they are in an insane asylum. Um, and so that history fascinates me. Um, you know, and, and then I'm looking at the records that tells us of all the kind of uh, ridiculous diagnoses that landed these people in insane asylums, uh, religious fervor, uh, excessive masturbation, um, domestic relations, all kinds of foolishness could land a black person in an insane asylum in the years after the Civil War. Right. And those people who found themselves in the same asylum were often rented out as laborers mm. <laughs> from a local farm, uh, many, you know, near the plantations where they were enslaved, or even on the plantations where they were enslaved. So, it, it, you know, I always find myself, you know, in these stories that, that are just fascinating and, 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 and talking to people who worked you know, at the, the place is still open today. The, the, the insane, the, the hospital, the mental hospital is still open today in Virginia, it's still serving people. It's no longer segregated, but it's right. still open. And I'm sure, was it was it started by, by white people? Yes. Because something I was very surprised about was, um, I watched an excerpt that was available, I think on YouTube, of your documentary, Until the Well Runs Dry. And the part of um that sort of introduces chris baker who was the the black man that was responsible for preparing cadavers but also who participated in grave robbing for profit of black graves that to me the sort of like mishandling and like abuse of even like deceased black bodies but by a black man was it was very it's i'm sure it's confusing for everyone to process and again like in going back, you had mentioned Roots earlier, which is the doc, it's the docudrama, yeah. With so the and you had mentioned this in another interview too. This scene of uh, Kunta Quinte, who's like being tied up and abused, but by the abuse was happening by sort of one of the head slaves, like another black man, and then the other like the other enslaved people were made to watch. So this infliction of violence on black people by other black people, whether mandated or not, or not, is is definitely something that's that is so complicated to to process and to understand and to understand the implications of and I think um, you addressing that in in filmmaking is definitely something that is um, that it's very important but yeah it's 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 a very um, sort of confused I don't know how else to describe it other than it's a confusing thing to wrap to wrap your head around it makes I mean of course like how could, easy, it, it seems to be it seems to be a very common element of of uh, domination because even right. during the whole in the concentration camp there were jewish uh guards there were there were jews who were also implicit in some of the abuse of other jewish folks uh but like the enslaved africans they 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 were also they they had no choice right the, of course they, they had, it wasn't like they could volunteer for the position right right um and so it's part of the system so none of them both of them are victims yeah, of course, of course, and it's and a layer of trauma the there. That sort of like control—it's a much more complicated sort yeah. of layer of control and nuance of control. Because I think a lot of people, when thinking about racism, it's very sort of like 
there's a lot of polarity and black and white, literally black and white and like white people controlling and inflicting violence upon black people and they're directly and that sort of layer of control in like the white people forcing black people to inflict the violence on other it's it's so it's just it's much more layered I think than than is what is generally understood and I think that is something that is most effectively sort of shared and and even processed in 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 art as you are doing um but when I ask about the insane asylum like that the until the well runs dry and learning about Chris Baker that definitely made me again I would have never thought when you told me about this insane asylum that like it could potentially have been run by other black people or that the people doing the diagnosing could have been by force of white people like that would have never been a thought until I saw the excerpt of your other documentary yeah but, but in this case that wasn't the case um right it was it was it was uh founded by former confederate generals and, and they they <laughs> were the uh you know responsible for all the uh insane asylums in virginia mm. um and, and so the the admin staff the doctors the nurses were, were white folks the Catholic, the workers you know the the, the frontline workers were black right now uh it, it wasn't it was it was <laughs> It was well into the 1960s, almost 1970s, before they had the first black director. Um, although it's still segregated, it was still exclusively black. Um, the black folks were, were simply the patients and the the lower level workers at that point. Uh, but now, now they have a black director. The last three or four directors have been black, but now it's, it's integrated, but not really. It's still a black hospital, but not by law. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, I digress. I, I didn't mean to go off on the tangent like that, but. Oh, no, absolutely not. I think that was a, a part of your work that I was definitely interested in talking about because I think, and again, even though I knew it was a part of your work, I had never thought about, because in preparing for this, I was thinking a lot about this sort of like out of the box therapy and what needs to happen in order for liberation to exist and to play a role in psychotherapy and the sort of like progress of psychotherapy. But I only thought about it within the context and framework of talk therapy. And I never sort of considered your, even like your practice of like documentary filmmaking. I never thought of that as another part of therapy and that maybe in order for like true progress to happen in therapy and for liberation to exist it's impossible for for that to sort of come to fruition in the in the context of talk therapy, and that other forms of therapy do need to be thought of as equally as um, sort of effective. Um, do you think that that's possible moving forward? And just sort of, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but just in concluding this conversation, I just want to hear, I guess, um, a bit of like where your thoughts are right now on the future of therapy. I know that we are going through right now this huge sort of push on on progress in mental health, and it's it's such a like sort of hot topic right now, mental health and mental wellness and therapy and normalizing therapy. But what are your thoughts on on where all of that truly stands and how we move forward in a way that is truly effective for everyone? Well, I, I think um, unfortunately it's becoming even more restrictive because of the economic component that drives it. And so, uh, you know, for some time now, we've been mandated to have empirically derived treatment approaches, um, you know, and so there are very specific, you know, steps now in order to get insurance reimbursement, right? Um, and so I think that 
that we're trying to tailor it to being an economically viable industry. And that's going to continue to restrict what we can and what we're willing to do. Right. Um, and so I think that's one problem. But I do think there's some progress on other stages in terms of some of the uh, psychopharmacological uh, discoveries, particularly around uh, hallucinogenics, for example. Um, and, and this is forcing psychology and psychiatry to, to be more flexible in terms of remedies. Mm. And so now we're talking about the effectiveness of, of psychedelics on depression, on trauma. Um, there's even empirical evidence about, of their efficacy. Mm. And, and so this is how you begin to, to kind of, you know, get these jaws cried open a little bit. Um, and so we'll see what happens in terms of uh, uh, where, that, where that goes. Um, but as far as it's like talk therapy, right. um, because we have these mandates about empirically derived treatment approaches, you know, we're limited to, you know, CBT and other, um, you know, uh, approaches that, that again, have a particular model. Now, you know, I think that anything that, that, uh, um, results in the desired outcome should be fair game for therapeutic use. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, all of us have gone to the movies, right, and have been moved by a, a, a show, a picture, right, where it's kind of transformed us. It's made us think differently. Yeah. It, it, it's inspired us. We've been inspired, right? We, we, we felt good or we felt empowered. We, you know, so, so we see the, the power of media and we see the power of movement, of other forms of art. Um, and so we know that these things do work. Yeah. But... No insurance company is going to pay you at the same rate that they pay a talk therapist. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, or even, uh, at the rate of a, um, someone administering medication. And so, you know, I, I think the, um, the industry, you know, looms large in the decisions we make around therapy. So we have to continue to try to get away from that. When you uh, mentioned hallucinogenics, are you talking about like psychedelic therapies? Yeah, yeah. Because I had yeah. on um, a friend of mine, Will who works with Rick Doblin at Maps, and he um, is sort of at the forefront of um, administering MDMA in clinical trials. And right now, that's limited to I think veterans with PTSD is like the very specific like focus like sub um, sort of sample group of who they're working with. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I definitely believe in. I mean, I think right now there is a problem with the sort of this like boom of ketamine clinics. I think um, ketamine is very much a suppressant and that I don't know if I fully believe in terms of being um, like sustainable in terms of mental health therapy, but I think like MDMA is an amazing sort of um, like therapy on the forefront of all of that. And also like psilocybin, I think is incredibly, can be incredibly therapeutic. But again, like in the work and the research that I've done around that, even like on a very novice level, it seems to be a very sort of like white movement right now. Um, and again, there is the whole discussion of sort of like, obviously like racism in, in like the medical sort of like institution, like, and I'm learning about that. And even in my multicultural counseling course, like you learn, you learn a lot about racism in the context of sort of like the medical framework. And I think like, even though like that is a, a form of therapy that is becoming like popularized and has a potential, I think, to be very effective. Do you think that um, what do you think about that being accessible to 
um, like African-American clients who are experiencing like racial trauma? Do you think like, is, do you see that as being an issue in terms of accessibility and, um, and all of that? Well, that's a good question. Um, I know it's a whole other question. We would need like hours to, dis- to discuss all of that, but it is something to think about for sure. Let me just say uh, that, that I, I think that you're right, that this movement seems to be, uh, you, know, you know, kind of a, a, a middle class, you know, white driven kind of, you know, exploration. Because, totally. you know, typically, typically uh, uh, many times middle class white folks have the privilege of, of being able to explore, you know, interesting and new frontiers. Mm-hmm. Yes, right? exploration um, is a privilege, absolutely, in terms of your yeah. own wellness. And black folks will be stymied by the by the stigma of mm-hmm. drug use. All yes, right? absolutely. And so they'll be they'll be hesitant to try these things because of you know they they got family members incarcerated for, for, for selling these drugs. Absolutely. Right. So I think you're going to have those kind of barriers. Yes. But I think the fact that, and the other thing that's, that's kind of, you know, a fact is that, that these indigenous treatments come out of communities of color, you know, and, and certainly in Central Africa and South and Central America, among Native American populations, these, these substances have been used for millennia, right? To alter levels of consciousness, right? For, for communicating, you know, with, with spirits and, and other kinds of religious or ceremonial practices. Mm-hmm. So they're not new. Their use is not new, yeah. right? Um, but the fact that they're now being mainstream is interesting. And so I, I think that, that you're right, that sometimes things are repackaged. Totally. Uh, for mainstream distribution and, 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 you know, commodification. But we'll see what happens. I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I think it's interesting. My my first thought um, in terms of like limitation of that kind of therapy being it was a question of availability because of like racism in the medical industry and field. And um, and I think but what you mentioned, the stigma is even more important than that. Um, the sort of yeah. hesitation to engage in that kind of progressive drug related therapy because of the stigma. I think that is such an important point to bring up because, again, yeah, it's absolutely so important. I mean, it reminds me, for example, I teach, you know, in, in every, the beginning of every semester, I get about five or six letters for accommodations, right? And, and the letters are almost never from black students. Almost never from black students, right? Uh, some folks have figured out how to work the system around accommodations for learning disabilities, mm. right? And they, they get incredible opportunities for unlimited time, um, extended times for, 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 for assignments. Mm-hmm. But Black people will not risk the stigma of, of any other mental, disorder, mental illness or, or learning disabilities or anything for extra time on a test. And so I, I think that that's an example of what will happen in, in this uh, realm as well, that Black folks will not be willing to risk the stigma even for the benefit. Yeah. Do you think that that's something that's kept black people from entering therapy in general, the sort of stigma of like mental instability and seeking treatment? Sure. I don't know to what degree, but for sure. For sure. Um, I think there's a a class element to that too, that middle-class black folks are more likely to seek therapy than than black folks who are not middle-class. Right. And certainly upper middle-class black folks, uh, you know, 
probably also are, are you know more inclined to seek therapy than black folks who are not you know middle class. But I think it's class and culture. Um, yeah. Do you, think that, do you think that we are making strides towards therapy in general being seen as more approachable to those groups of lower class black people that have felt, as you said, maybe sort of like hesitant because of stigma? Do you think that um, there is sort of um, like a there are strides being made toward it becoming sort of less stigmatized um, because I do believe that therapy, even though some of it, as we've spoken about during this discussion, um, there are sort of ways in which it needs to evolve a lot. Yeah. Um, there, but do you think, I think in general, it is something therapy is more helpful than no therapy for the most part, especially to those. I, do you think that I we're agree. making strides towards um, sort of it being seen as um, more? I don't know. I don't know, but I, I agree that therapy is good. Um, even if we just talk, if, if, even if we just boil it down to being able to vent to somebody, having Absolutely. somebody to vent to, uh, bounce things off of, you know, that, that's good. And yeah. if that's what therapy is for some people, that's good. Absolutely. Um, but I don't know if, if we, I don't have the data, but I don't know if we arrive at a place where, you know, everyone is kind of welcoming that opportunity. Yeah. Um, because I, I still think there's some degree of, of vulnerability um, you know, and people are not willing to admit their vulnerability. That's just a human thing, I think. You know, yeah. uh, people who have people who have many vulnerabilities, right, uh, many disadvantages, don't want to tack on additional ones. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Because in a society in which you feel the threat, the ever-present threat, you try to put up these, you know, facades of strength, and, and you know, and, and so adding more vulnerabilities besides poverty. Lack of education, you know, you don't want to add mental health issues now. So I think people are reacting not because they're poor, but because they're human. Mm -hmm. and, and no one wants to, to have those vulnerabilities piled on. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And um, again, Dr. Utsi, thank you so, so much for your time. And in, in wrapping up, I just want to ask you, uh, you said you're, docu you're working on a new documentary. When will that be available for me to see, for everyone to see? Um, and what else are you maybe working on that you'd like to mention? Probably by 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 the end of June. I'm I'm, I'm wrapping it up now. Um, I'm pleased with the progress. I'm trying to work on some a few post production issues. Um, and the thing that's coming very soon that I began working on this month is going to be a response to the apology. In fact, I'm calling it the apology. And this references the apology from the American Psychological Association to Black people. Uh, for their for their uh, uh, complicity in perpetuating racism um, for all these millennia, and so the the APA, the American Psychological Association, uh, issued an apology, um, as did the American Psychiatric Association, uh, apologizing for their contribution to scientific racism and the harm it's caused Black people and other people of color. Uh, so I'm going to uh, fashion a response to the apology. When did that apology come out? Uh, maybe six months ago. Wow. You go to the website and, and, and search apology. Oh, absolutely. Well, I very I really look forward to it. And when will when will your response be available? Uh, I don't know. That's okay. going to be um it'll be sooner, but but I don't know yet. But that's going to be something I look forward to doing. Uh the apology was a day late and a dollar short. Wow. But um and they also had they, they had their black memberships. <laughs> write the apology. 
Um, but but that's another story. Yeah. Um, wow. Thank so you. Look forward. Thank you. Thank for you so me. much. Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to to keeping in touch. And I, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Right. Take care now. You too.